Dayspring University hosts Matt Friedemann and others as they present a five-part sermon series called Discipleship in the Home. Good to see you. Thanks for coming tonight. Uh, as it was announced, Dayspring University. If you got your Bibles, uh, turn to uh, Psalm 127. We'll start off with a little scripture. And this is a kind of a quintessential family passage in the Bible. I love it. Um, by the way, this is one of what they call the songs of ascent. If you go to Jerusalem, and I hope everybody gets a chance to someday, it's just kind of a fun trip. Um, but whether you do or you don't, there are a lot of good resources out there. I don't know if you've ever heard something called That the World May Know. It's uh, put together by Ray Vanderlaan, and he'll take you right to the promised land. <laughs> and uh, he'll take you to all the sites, and it's really Really, really good. Actually, I think the, the tour you get from Ray is uh, better, really, than the tour you get there, information-wise. You'll just know so much with Ray's stuff. So check that out. You can get it um, on, uh, on uh, the Internet, and it's really quite good. But one of the things he talks about, one of the things they talk about when you go there is um, you're always wondering, all right, was, was Jesus really here? I mean, is this really the place? And there's just so much that you just don't know. For instance, when you go to Jerusalem, you know that every time, and Jerusalem's been like pummeled and laid flat multiple times in history. Just not like once or twice, just all the time they're going in there and just wiping it out. And so what you do back in those days is you build on top. You don't just come in and say, well, let's rebuild where we're at. They just would build on top. And so, for instance, you're going down the Via, Via Doloroso, and you're thinking, man, this is great. This is the place. Well, n- not really the place. It, this is the place maybe uh, 30 feet up or so <laughs> from wherever it might have been down there because it's just been built up. So they have a fun place where they say, okay, Jesus, right here at this place, um, he was with his cross, and uh, he went down, and his hand went up. And they actually have a place where the hand is up there. Well, no. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, and they'll say, yeah, that was the place, but no, the place was like down there a ways is where if, if he ever had a hand that went on the wall, it was down there a ways. Anyway, the whole thing is, was Jesus really here? Was Jesus really here? And you can say some places, yeah, we think pretty much he was there. We don't know exactly. Caesarea Philippi, there's a place called the gates of hell, and we know where that is, and that's how we know Jesus was at the region of Caesarea Philippi. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know where the gates of hell were. So somewhere, you know, within several uh, yards, maybe 100 yards from that place, Jesus was looking on, talking with his disciples about that place. Uh, So, yeah, somewhere around here Jesus was. But do we ever know of, of a place where Jesus actually was? Like his footsteps was right here. And they said that Neil Armstrong, anybody remember Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon, right? He got to the teaching steps. Now, teaching steps are the southern steps, the entry into uh, the, the city or to the temple area. And uh, those, those teaching steps, they think all kinds of things probably happened there. Um, but we know that Jesus taught from some place, and almost assuredly he taught at the teaching steps. We think, and that's probably where the day of Pentecost happened, they came out of the upper room, wherever they were at, and they ended up there. And that's probably where Peter gave his... That was just the typical place to go if you wanted to broadcast a message. Furthermore, 
there's some mikvahs, like baths, a ceremonial baths all around that place. In fact, the teaching steps are right here, and not that way, probably about 20 yards. There's one of those mikvahs where they would have done the baptisms. And so you're thinking, well, this is pretty cool. I am here. This is the place. So we, and then they think maybe Jesus at age 12 ended up on those teaching steps. So that's kind of cool. Uh, one of the things we know about the teaching steps, when you arrived in Jerusalem, this is where you went in. This is the place. So you marched up those steps, and you went on in. One of the things they almost assuredly did was they sang the songs of ascent. So this part of the Psalter, starting with Psalm 120, <coughs> and there are 15 songs of ascent. So you would go to Psalm 1 and sing that on the way to Jerusalem. Um, but when you finally got to Jerusalem, now they called them ascent because it was Mount Zion. It was on a hill. We wouldn't call it a mountain, but they call it a mount. And anyway, it was, it was a high place. When they finally got there, this is what they said they did. They had a short step and then a long step. They would go to the long step, and they would do the first song of ascent. They would have had them memorized. They would have sung them probably. <clears throat> I cried to the Lord in my trouble, and he answered me. Rescue my soul, Lord, from life. They would have some tune, and they would have sung this. Then their small step. You take the small step and then get to the next long step, and you do Psalm 121, Psalm 122. So Psalm 127 would have been the eighth step, and you would have landed on that eighth step, and you would have sung this song, unless the Lord builds a house, they who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's futile for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of painful labor. This is how he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, all that sets up this. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows, now we're taking the offensive, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They'll not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I think there's some spiritual ramifications here, but I think there's some very practical ramifications. That is, one of the ways you would have clout and protection and maybe even power, political and otherwise, is to have a large family. But for sure, when it says here, they're, they're going to be good, they're not going to be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate because we're going to show up to our enemies and say, <laughs> I don't know if, if you've ever had this kind of thing happen. I, I, I always hear stories of, you know, a little guy, you know, facing up the big bully and he's about ready to get pummeled and beat up and it's going to be bad news. But then all of a sudden his brothers show up and his brothers, about four or five of them are tall and strong and intimidating. And all of a sudden, you're feeling pretty good about your standing in life, Mr. Bully. That's kind of what this is, all right? It had spiritual implications. It had practical ramifications. whole point is we like children. They do a lot for us. Now, what we have considered children, unfortunately, in the West, in the last many years, is a liability. Oh, they, they, they put out statistics that say, do you know how much they cost? This is what, the, and they run, and I'm, I've always looked at them, but first off, okay, so they cost a lot. Um, 
but I don't think they, near, they cost nearly as, what, uh, as much as what they tell you it's going to cost. You know, uh, a kid's going to cost you a half million dollars. Well, I'm not even sure I've made a half million dollars, you know, but I mean, it's going to, you know, every kid. Well, I've had six of those, and so six times five, and I'm thinking, I haven't made that much money. And yes, somehow we made it, you know, somehow. And by the way, the last one graduates this month. I'm, we're going down there. Because I've been gone so much, we're going to hustle back. I'm going to be here Sunday. We're going to drive, probably I'll get back at midnight or 1 a.m. And I'll think, thank the Lord, Day Springs got their pastor this weekend. Because I was thinking about it. No, anyway, I, I'm going to tell you, though, we made it. We made it without debt. We made it living. Everybody has clean clothes and a bar of ivory soap. We made it. We made it. And no, it didn't cost us a half million dollars a kid or $100,000, whatever they say it's supposed to cost. It just, y'all, it's a precious gift of God. And when you start thinking they're not, then you're okay with things like abortion. Well, let's take care of it. Let's get rid of them because liability. No, they're not liabilities. They're gifts of the Lord. And they have all kinds of spiritual and practical ramifications. And if you treat your family like they're supposed to be treated, those are almost invariably positive. Uh, now it can spiral out of control and get nasty. Get that. But on the whole, they're meant to be a gift. And so we all have been around situations, and maybe we have situations that aren't quite so pretty as all that, or quite so beautiful, or quite so positive as all that. I guess that's why we do something like this, is to say, is there a way that we could act? Is there a way we could conduct our lives biblically so that it ends up leaning towards a positive. Everybody has, if they make good decisions, it's going to end up relatively positive for everybody. There are no guarantees in life, y'all. Amen to that? The Father in heaven showed us that you can do everything right, perfect as God, and your children can go awry. So that's a possibility, no question about it. But I believe he also instructs, if you do things well and ordered and, and, and holy, you have a good chance of having a family making good choices and ending up spiritual assets to the world. And as we talked about last week, we want to set up our families to be a blessing to the nations. So let's just real quick run through this. Uh, Mike, go ahead and get to the first verse there. Last week we talked about Genesis 12. Abram and his family are chosen by God to start a nation that will bless all other nations. And actually it says will bless all other families. But uh, that was true of Abram, and that happened. The reason that happened through Abram is because from Abram's family came Jesus and came the early apostles. That was all the family, the, 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 the sons and daughters of Abraham. And so we know what happened, and it's blessed us. So Abram's family has been a huge blessing. In fact, we're grafted into the, we are the family. Praise God. Now, having said that, we, uh, we also recognize that that family is it's supposed to be for us uh, a tremendous, not only example, but spiritually, this ought to be what happens with our families. When you start a family, that's how you need to start thinking. We're not just having families because we love kids. Uh, we're having family so that we can be a blessing to other people. And there's going to be lots of people in this old world that need the blessing of your family. You do not exist for yourself you exist for other people. In fact, that's Catherine Booth. She, uh, she with, along with her husband, William, started the Salvation Army. She'd put her children to bed every night, cup their faces and say, Sweetheart, 
you've not been sent here for yourself. You have been sent for others. The world is waiting for you. And that's why we do family, so that we can raise people that can be a blessing. And, of course, the best blessing of all is a spiritual blessing. So that's the first thing. Let's go to the next one. We talk about the objectives of God for everyone, but certainly our families. And based off of 19.6, Moses, before he gets all the Ten Commandments, and based on the ministry of Jesus in 4 and 5 and everything else we see in Scripture, God wants us to be strong in community. He wants us to serve. And for Jesus, that meant running to the sound of the pain. Who are the needy people? How can we get in the middle of them and show love? And then, of course, out of community and out of service, we build Christ-like character. Now, Christ-like character isn't just built. It's grace. It's a spiritual thing. It's a transformational thing. But the transformation typically comes through what the Lord calls the means of grace. And the means of grace, remember we do the habits of a day springer from time to time, and we talk about prayer and Bible study and, and spousal prayer and, and fasting and all these things and service, having an internal ministry and an external ministry, tithing, all these things are the, is the way that grace flows into our life. We don't do them because we have to do them. We do them because that's the abundant life. That's a life of grace. Listen, you, you, you say, well, I give up a tithe. I sacrifice. I make a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. It's the abundant life. It's the life Jesus has chosen for you. If you live it, you'll be a more abundant still, more grace. I don't know if about you. Anybody here for more grace? And he says, well, well, take seriously the means of grace. Take seriously the means of grace. So that's, uh, that's the objective. Number three is this. Um, how to make biblical disciples in, in the family. This very famous passage out of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And that, it's called the Shema passage here. And so, uh, you shall love the Lord. And by the way, this is what Jesus says is the most important commandment. And he didn't just say it. Everybody believed it at the time of Jesus. Jesus was coming along and saying, you're all right. It is. Uh, everyone recognized that this is hugely important. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you, they shall be on your heart, and you shall shanan. Shanan is the Hebrew word. And shanan means carve into or to impress, right? I'm going to press something into it. I'm going to carve it in. And uh, some scholars are thinking, man, that's, that's kind of intense. I'm not so sure it could mean that. And so what they have decided, some Hebrew scholars, it probably doesn't mean carve into. It probably means repeat. You shall repeat these things to your children. All I got to say is, that's how you impress. If you want to impress your child over 20 years about a way to live, you do something over and over and over and over again. That carves certain great things into their lives. And so we come to where we're going to be this, this, uh, this evening, and that is we want to talk about rituals. And you think, oh, my goodness, how boring could that be? And uh, it's not actually... Boring in the least if you want to impact a child. Hey, listen, we believe our, we, every one of us are a, a ritualistic people. If you go to like the Catholic Church or the Episcopalian Church, they do rituals and it's like bam, 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 bam. I mean, they're doing rituals. And by doing so, Catholicism has said, if you give us a child between zero and six, they'll be Catholic for life. We will ingrain these rituals in them and they will believe, and particularly the sacrament. 
There's a certain thing they believe about the sacrament, and we roll along with that, and basically, if we get you by age six, we got you for life. I actually am impressed with the audacity of that, because it's kind of true. Now, we need to do the same thing. Now, you say, well, day spring. Oh, thank the Lord we're not ritualistic. Are you kidding me? We do the same thing every week. You know, you park your car probably in the same place, you know. You, you, you come in, you're greeted by the same people, and you're kissing the same people, and you're hugging everybody, and then you come in here, and what does the pastor do? Hey, let's sing uh, uh, two songs. One of them is supposed to be high energy, and one of them, you know, and then, and then the pastor gets up and does what? Reads a little psalm. And then does what? Hey, let's do our mission statement. We're as ritualistic as any Episcopalian. We just clip right along, right? Why is because we think that that is a ritual that ingrains certain things in our brains. I don't think you have to go here more than a month and you know the mission statement. You know why we exist. You know what this church is all about. You shouldn't come here long before you know, hey, this is, this is the church that likes service. They keep throwing these numbers up. They keep talking about run to the sound. Of, I mean, this is, so, but the reason for that is we kind of ritualistically attack it every week. You say, well, should we do that? Absolutely you do that. And you say, well, that's good for days, but I'm glad I'm not ritualistic. Stop it. You get up in the morning and you do the same thing every morning, all right? Make your cup of coffee, sit in the chair. We used to be at my house, the newspaper. The most ritualistic thing we did every day outside of TV itself was read the paper. And... Uh, just certain things we did every day. And by the way, we had, we had a house that had about 800 square feet and had a little itty-bitty, I do I mean an itty-bitty bathroom. Uh, and we had seven of us. So that meant Dad was getting up at 4 a.m. just so he could use the bathroom. I mean, because, man, once everybody started waking up, it was a war. And before long, you thought, well, no, it doesn't have to be a war. Just someone needs to slide in there, make good use of 90 seconds, and get out because somebody else needs in there. And people are slipping and slipping out ritualistically. It kind of got to where you knew who's going to be in there next because that's the way we did things. And then everybody's at school at the same time. You go to the same classes. I mean, our life is ritualistic. Now, here's the point. You can do those rituals well or do them poorly. You can do them so they don't impact, and you can do rituals that don't have nearly the impact as rituals that should have great impact on your life. And so what we believe is we are a ritualistic people, and we know that there are positive rituals we can do. We know there are negative rituals that you can do. And so what I really recommend this evening for you is uh, when you have children, discern what are the things we want for our kids and discern the rituals that will get you to those things for your kids. So we got kind of a, uh, the, the next week we're going to talk about working the age 18 list. Uh, we're not talking that tonight, but I'll just say, for me, the age 18 list was what I want the kid to be like. Mary and I both said, what do we want our children to be like at age 18? What are the characteristics we want them to have? What are the things we want them to know? We made that list, and then we started deciding what are the, what's, what's going to be the things that get us to that list? What's going to be the things that get us there? And, uh, and so we started certain rituals. And... Uh, we maintain those rituals across uh, about three decades. So I want to talk to you about positive versus detrimental rituals tonight. And uh, let me just say there are detrimental rituals. I know this 
because I was raised, and I do mean I was raised, on the negative ritual of watching television. And I don't mean watching a little bit. I don't mean occasionally turning the set on. I mean six to eight hours a day. My mind has been formed on the television set. And so recognizing that, I've had to discern, is this a good thing? And of course, it's not a good thing. And we've really got to say, okay, if we're going to be the people we need to be for the freedom and kids, what does Matt need to repent of in order to make that sort of thing happen? So we start saying, let's talk in terms of TV. I need them. Steve, can you grab me one of those sheets and, and bring one of them to me? Um, so it's okay. Miss Patricia, thanks. I got it. Okay, so... Um, what we said was, I, I looked at my life, and by the way, I did this before I was ever married, and I, I remember the day I did it. I was reading, uh, or I was listening to Keith Green. Anybody remember Keith Green? A couple of you do. Keith Green, the man, the myth, the, died at age 28, and he died the summer I was going to seminary. It crushed me. Oh, my goodness. It just crushed me. I love that guy. Loved his music. Uh, he, was, he wasn't namby-pamby in any kind of form as far as his approach to the gospel. And some of you know a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. Discipled him, and Leonard Ravenhill is about as tough and about as hard-edged as you can be. Uh, I think Keith was a much nicer guy than Ravenhill. Ravenhill was speaking into his life. And, and, and Keith, man. So I'd heard some Keith Green song, and he'd said something about sin. And I said, I got to get rid of sin in my life. So I go in and I said, I'm going to go into my apartment right now, and anything that I see that I cast my eyes on that isn't a good thing, is a sin thing for me, I'm getting rid of it. So there's, there's, there was two things I got. Sugar was one of them. And I, I went about a year, no sugar at all. In fact, if I found out something like ketchup had sugar in it, I wouldn't eat it. I mean, which, and that's kind of hard. Everything's got it. I'm going to just go tell you, it's kind of hard. But I, I, as best as I knew, I, I got away from sugar. But the other thing, I saw that TV. Now, the things I was watching on TV at that point happens to be MASH. Anybody remember MASH? Uh, the Dick Van Dyke reruns, you know. These are the things that I'm immersed in. But I just said, I that's not good. Mayberry. Uh, Andy Griffith Show. By the way, you know, the only happy family in the Andy, Andy Griffith Show, I mean, by, by family, I mean marriage, the drunk. Do you ever think about it? Everybody else, no woman in those guys' lives. The only guy that has a woman and they're still together is the drunk. What was his name, by the way? Otis. I liked him. Otis just fine. But, you know, he was the only guy that had a wife as far as I could tell. I thought, isn't that a little weird? Is Hollywood trying to do something to me there? And you think, man, you got to be one cynical dude to have a problem with Mayberry. All right, call me cynical. I, I grabbed that TV set, and I took it out, and I, I propped it up next to the trash can. I said, at least I'm going to have fun doing this. Took a, took a brick. Took a brick. Ah, bam. Hit the screen, and it broke the brick. <laughs> I did this three times. Gave my best Bob Gibson, Bob Gibson, Bob Gibson fastball trying to break the screen, and it broke the brick. I got three broken bricks. I thought... Dang, that is one. So I said, well, then I was just mad. So I, I go and pick it up. Now, a clean and jerk is something I used to do in the day. It's picking a weight up like this and, and getting under it. I thought, is there an opposite of that? Is there a throw down and jerk? So, or th throw the jerk down or throw this jerky thing down. Whatever. So I picked it up, 
and I wham, it just bounced. Now, I whammed it on the screen. I'm breaking this screen. The screen's going to, it just bounces. Boom, boom. Oh, man, I'm so mad now. I'm foaming at them. If, if, if I'm getting rid of the sin on my TV, and I have the sin of anger, okay? So I grab the scene. I go across the street. There's a grade school across the street, and uh, I'm just so glad the police didn't come by. I don't know how to explain this. I've been listening to Keith Green. I've got to, you know, officer, I've got to do this thing. I get up uh, on the second floor, and I toss it off. It, it hits the screen. It does not break. And I just, oh, I've always said, I, I felt like, I don't know if the Lord spoke to me in that moment. I, I'm not very good at discerning such things. All I felt like was the Lord saying, sin's pretty tough, Matt. <laughs> kind of hard to get rid of it. Anyway, last pretty much TV we owned. And that was before we ever got married. So we got married, have kids, and we just decided probably the best thing to do is to try to stay away from, from, from that. And it was one of the best things we ever did as a family. We did it before we ever were a family. I'm just thankful because, again, six to eight hours. This is the ritual of the Freedom Family. Uh, 26034, Great Bend, Kansas. You go in the front door, close the door, turn on the TV, go about your business, and then come back and watch it. And when you leave, you keep the TV on until the last person leaves. Then the last person will finally hit the button and go out the door. It's on virtually always when a freedman's in the house, except when we're sleeping. Always. And I just think that is as close to wickedness in a modern culture as you can get. Letting Hollywood, Madison Avenue, everything into your life and uh, just saying without criticism or without analyzing or without anything, just sitting down and watching it. Now, the time waster for sure. But that gets into your brain, that stuff. The information does, but then I started learning about other stuff. And this is where, if you want to look down there at the bottom of page one, Dr. John Rosemont has an excellent chapter in his, and by the way, this is an excellent book, Six Point Plan for Raising Happy and Healthy Children. He says, since 1955, when American children began watching significant amounts of television, scholastic achievement test scores have steadily declined. As a nation, our literacy level has declined as well. Learning disabilities have increased dramatically, whether the program is Sesame Street or your favorite sitcom, television watching inhibits the following. The development of initiative, curiosity, resourcefulness, creativity, motivation, imagination, reasoning and problem-solving abilities, communication skills, social skills. You can turn to page two. Fine and gross motor skills and eye-hand coordination. He says, shall I go on? Because television causes the child to stare at rather than scan the environment. It is safe to add that visual tracking skills are not strengthened either. Furthermore, television watching interferes significantly with the development of a long attention span. Now, this would have shocked me because I could sit in front of television for 24 hours a day and never move my eyes and just be as pleased and happy with myself as I could be. I think I got a long attention span. I've learned I don't, <laughs> I don't have any attention span. I mean, I'd, I've never have had. Once you get me away from the television set, man, I just I can't track very long. I just... So many people believe, hey, got to have a good attention span. No, that's an optical illusion. Consider the fact that a picture on a television screen changes on the average about every three to four seconds. And actually, that's been ratcheted down now to two and a half to three seconds. It changes all the time. That's a constant perceptual shift or a flicker. So that you aren't attending to anything longer than, than a few seconds, and then it changes. 
So as a result, television watching is a strangely paradoxical situation for the young child. The more time he spends watching television, the shorter his attention span actually becomes. Makes no sense, and yet, think about it, it makes every sense. So, last, but not, uh, not least, because the t- action on television set shifts uh, capriciously backward, forward, and lateral in time, not to mention from subject matter, subject matter, television fails to promote logical and sequential thinking, which is essential to an understanding of cause and effect relationships. This causes difficulties in both following directions and anticipating consequences. This is like, this is like my life. So after listing these dismaying effects, and this is the paragraph that just shins, shivers up my spine for my own life, my own brain, but also what happens to children's brains across America and around the world. Examined from a developmental perspective, one is forced to conclude that television watching is a deprivational experience. And if that window of opportunity for the development of the above is lost, hoo, 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 it can never be fully opened again. You think, it's not so bad. My kid's just watching television. It's okay. Keep them quiet while I do what I need to do in the house. And what you're doing there is the more they watch it, the more they're deprived and their brain is deprived. And the more they're deprived, it can never be fully opened again. Potential is being lost that can't be regained. Potential is lost that can't be regained. And so, I, uh, I would suggest that you do something about it in your family's life, and particularly if you have young kids, but frankly, if you have any kids at all. Problem is, that usually means we've got to, <laughs> it's not enough to say the kids can't do something, I've got to do something. And what I'm finding out is, there's a lot of, I've, I've done this material for a couple decades now, and usually... There's a few people willing to go along with the program. Invariably, they're women. And the men are too into sports to ever make that happen. Oh, no, 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 baby. No, we're keeping our TV set. And what's really weird is, uh, even the women. So I'm, I'm talking, I used, you know, used to have this uh, radio talk show, and they used to have something called TV Turn Off Month. Anybody remember that? You say, hey, you know, join us for TV turn We're just doing, we're, we're putting our TVs away, and we're just going to get back to talking to one another, playing games with one another, actually discussing topics together, you know, just do this. And so they do that. that for the Man Freedom Show, we always felt like that wasn't radical enough. We don't want to turn it off for a month. We want to throw it out. So we'd have National Throw Your TV Out Month. And we say, call in and give your testimonies. Uh, I, you know, that's, that wasn't a good idea. You know, if you ever want to hear crickets chirp while your radio show's trying to generate phone calls, have a national TV turnoff month for your Matt Freedom Show. It, it didn't work. No one called in. Till the last day. On the last day of the Matt Freedom Show's Throw Your TV Out uh, month, um, someone calls in. Lady. Oh, Matt. What a glorious month it's been. We put our TV in the closet, and it's been the best month of our lives. I mean, we're happier. We're laughing more. We enjoy one another more. We're having lots of great conversations. We're reading books more. Everything about it is just wonderful. And, of course, I'm just feeling like a million bucks. All right, finally. 
if I just get one? And I said, okay, well, man, what a testimony. Thanks so very much. So uh, you're going to get it out of the closet and just go throw it away, right? Right? She goes, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. We're putting it back in the den tonight. The month is over. What she just said was, had the greatest, most wholesome, most spiritual month of our lives because television was out of the room, but the month's over. We're putting it back in the room. And I was befuddled. I didn't even know what to say. I thought, I mean, you know, it's, it's Christian radio, and Don Wallman's trying to build up uh, his followers, and I can't say, have you lost your mind, woman? Oh, yeah, it goes right back in. I mean, fun month. Great month. Best month of our lives. Deeper spiritually, more holy than ever. But, man, that was a, that was a month without TV. We, we want to go back to it now. That suggests it's incredibly addictive. We can shut it down for a day, maybe for a month, but we can't shut it down because it is what they intended for it to be, addictive. And you know something? I had no idea anything about any 12-step programs or how you handle addiction. But back when I was a senior in college, when I threw it away, I was pretty smart. and didn't even know I was smart. I was just trying to do what Keith Green wanted me to do. I had no idea what I was doing. But you know, you can't, if you're addicted to something, it's not a wise idea to say, yeah, I've got a liquor problem. I just drink a little bit now every day. That program doesn't work. I got an addiction problem. It's going to be a little bit all. Uh, so, so for me to get rid of it has, was a, a really good thing. And it ended up being a great thing for the family. Now, as you know, we don't just have a TV problem anymore. When I wrote the first Discipleship in the Home volume, that was kind of the deal. I have been alive. Not like, Has the last 20 years been incredible? The last 30 years just been unbelievable, the changes that have come? And we're talking about unbelievable change. I think I had the first computer at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And I mean, what a joke. I had to have a whole floppy disk. Remember floppy disks? I had to have one floppy disk for one 20-page paper. That's all. So I did my dissertation. But we did it in 20-page spurts. And at one point, we had the, 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 the dissertation. By the way, the dissertation was 697 pages long. So we had the dissertation, I think, in two kind of crates. And it's like, oh, my goodness. And uh, the mayor was, was typing as fast as I could throw stuff at her. And it was just, it was an incredible, incredible thing. Well, so 697 pages and, and 20. Hey, y'all, we've come a long way from floppy disks. We came a long way with floppy disks just in the next five years. And then the next five years was incredible. And you know what they say? It's not going to slow down. There's never going to come a time anymore when we say, ah, that's settled now. It's cassette tapes for the next 50 years. Hey, where did cassette tapes go, man? I loved them. And all of a sudden, whoosh. I mean, I thought I was, we were halfway through this cassette tape craze when I got my first one. And I thought, wow, I'm late to this party, but this is great. And then, then you, there's nowhere to play them. And now CDs. I got, had a guy this week trying to sell me his music CD. I'm thinking, dude, I don't have a place to play it. My Apple computer said, no, no, no. Yeah, we used to do that. But that was three computer ago. Not now, baby. We're on to, I don't even want we're on to. 
I can't keep up. And that's when you know you're starting to walk, walk with a cane and thinking, I can't keep up. And I'm, I think I'm, I I'm kind of up to date on these things. I'm not up there. I can't keep up. And that's how fast. And they say it's just going to keep going faster. It doesn't slow down. It, it, it doesn't. It, there's never going to come a time there. Okay, I think for 365 days, I got everything I need to make it through the year. No, you don't. It's going to come a time where it's going to change halfway through, and you'd better change or you're hopelessly behind. You're thinking, nah, that ain't going to happen in my lifetime. It's already happened, you all, <laughs> on some technologies. That's how fast the thing goes. So having said that, screens. Look down there, bottom page two. With the advent and wide-scale use of the Internet and the smartphone, Christians entered into a whole new world of challenge. No kidding. And so if you look on page three, uh, what is fascinating to me is when you ask uh, the guys that are making this stuff out in Silicon Valley, what do you think about this stuff? It's amazing what they say. Steve Jobs, New York Times reporter, asked him how children love the new iPad, how his children love the new iPad. He said, they haven't used it. We limit our technology. Just because I invent something, man, I'm going to let my kids, are you kidding me? Look at the next one, Melinda Gates. Phones and apps aren't good or bad by themselves, but for adolescents who don't yet have the emotional tools to navigate life's complications, confusions, they can exacerbate the difficulties of growing up, learning how to be kind, coping with feelings of exclusion, taking advantage of freedom while exercising self-control. Uh, look at Chris Anderson, uh, CEO of robotics and drone company 3DR, said, my kids accuse me and my wife of being fascists. Yeah, go take your teenager's iPhone away from them and just, uh, just take, a notes, take notes as to what they're going to call you when that happens. Fascist might be the nicest thing they call you. Uh, they accuse me accuse us of being fascist and overly concerned about tech, and they say that none of the friends have the same rules. That's because we have seen the dangers of technology firsthand. We created this stuff, and we see what it does to people. And I've seen it myself. I don't want to see that happen to my kids. On the scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack. Uh, Sean Parker, Napster founder and former Facebook president. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them was, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. I'm convinced as Athena Shavaria, executive assistant at Facebook, I'm convinced the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children. Apple CEO Tim Cook, I don't have a kid, but I have a nephew, and I put some boundaries on him. There are some things that I won't allow. I don't want them on a social network, period. My wife and I, says Reddit co-founder, my wife and I both want our daughter to be bored. Bored's not a bad thing. Bored's a good thing is what she's saying. My wife and I both want them to know what it's like to have limits on tech, so we'll be regulating her screen time pretty heavily. And uh, says Shamath, and I, I don't even dare pronounce the name, uh, former Facebook senior executive, there's no screen time whatsoever for my children. What do they know that we need to know. And they're creating this stuff. And so, this is what I suspect. It is taking a lot of our kids' time, and it's happening because we 
let it happen. We even promote it happening. We promote it happening. Let me, let me, so we have something called Wesley Institute right now. And by the way, I don't really promote it here, but I really ought to because I think you'd love it. It's going through Old and New Testament, uh, 60, uh, 66 books of the Bible uh, taught by seminary uh, professors across the two semesters of the year uh, for 600 bucks. And then the second semester, it's theology, every theological topic under the sun. Again, all taught by professors. Another 600 bucks. So a two-year program. It's great. I mean, it's just really great. But I got that idea from a, from a place called Downline in Memphis. And the guy called me up and said, we'd like for you to come and talk to our people. So I thought, well, let's go up and talk to a nice group of 30. There's 250 people uh, in, uh, in stadium kind of seating, I don't, whatever that kind of seating is. I don't know. But they're all up there and kind of looking down at me in the middle here. And, and I'm supposed to be talking on this option of the home. So I go over this stuff. And, of course, no traction whatsoever. I mean, yeah, yeah, sweet, yeah, whatever. But one guy comes down and says, man, can I buy you a, a, a breakfast? I said, I'm kind of into breakfast. Yeah, I think we could do that. So he takes me out to breakfast. I said, I've got to ask you a question. I said, yeah. I said, uh, my kid has an iPhone, and everything you were talking about TV, they can get it all now on iPhone. I says, it scares the living daylights out of me. Not only can they get movies, they get TV programs. And, of course, the porn world is just open wide to them. And there's no way to regulate. You can't regulate. The, 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 the computer stuff, there's a way to regulate that. You can kind of see what they're doing. They got programs. They got no programs for this stuff. By the way, I'm always dubious about the programs they had for the computer, too. One of our kids used to go to church here, blew his head off because he had the programs. It wouldn't let him into porn, and all his kids, all his friends said, hey, yeah, you can get it, this is the way in. He got in, was, felt so ashamed about it, went back home, put a rifle to his cheek. And I said, just, I'd, I'd watch out for how carefully you can guard it with your own kids. Having said that, we say, well, he said, I, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I said, chill out, man. There's, there's a way forward. He says, there is? I said, yeah. I said, who pays for that iPhone? He says, I do. Well, I, I, I think I see a way forward, don't you? He says, no, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. Dude, you don't like it. You know it's wrong for your kid. You know it opens up a whole world for him you don't approve of. Just quit paying for it. Does he got a job? He says, no. Touchdown! <laughs> he starts tearing up. I'm thinking, I, I don't know what i got going here. He start, he's tearing up on me now. He's a, he's a real man guy. He's tearing up. He said, I said, he says, you can do that? I said, I grabbed his arm. Give me your arm. I just grabbed his arm. I said, you can do that, man. <laughs> he's got tears rolling down his cheeks. I said, I said, I said, no, listen, you're the parent here. You got all the power. Now, I'm not going to say he's going to like it. But the next section here says something about Oh, my goodness. We know what some of this stuff can do. Um, porn addiction and, 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 and all kinds of other addiction. But look down at the bottom of page five. By the way, the, the guy, I had to stop him from practically kissing me as I left the breakfast place. I mean, this, he was in love with me at that point. It's just like, you saved me. You saved my family. Hey, y'all, 
We're parents. We got to act like parents. And they're going to think we're fascists. Let them think we're fascists. What we're supposed to be is not their best friends. I hope, I, I hope my kids really like me. I hope they think, Dad, man, that'd be a cool thing if any one of them would ever say it. Dad's my best friend. But that's not what I'm looking to do in their life. I'm not looking to be their friend. I want to be Dad. I want to be the guy who lowered the boom at the uncomfortable places of life. And we lower, any parent does, you lower booms. That's kind of what we do. When they were younger, it was shock and awe. When you get older, you just got a lower boom. Some stuff has to happen, okay? We've got power. We've got to use it. It's important that we recognize this. And no, they don't get to do everything they do because everybody else is doing it. <laughs> when did that become good parenting? Everybody else has one, therefore my kids got to have one. By the way, you know what the guy said before, before we broke up? He says, no, I mean, that's how we stay in touch, too. I mean, I, I, I said, listen, did you grow up without a cell phone? He said, yeah. And look at us. Here we are. We made it somehow. We made it without talking to mom three times today. I think he's going to be okay. He says, well, what happens if, if he's in danger and he needs to call somebody? Listen, dude, this is what's going to happen. He's in trouble. He needs to call home. You know what he's going to do? No. What's he going to do? He says, he's going to say, no, let me use your phone. No one laughed at that. You need to laugh at that. Hey, that was a good line. But that's what he's going to do. It's going to be okay. Somehow the human race has made it through all these years without iPhones. I know it's hard to believe. But 10 years ago, we were doing just fine. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, Moses did just fine without an iPhone. I want you to go down to page 5, Gene Twinge. In a book on kids and modern media, she cites study after study showing that screen activities are linked to increased loneliness and depression, while non-screen activities are associated with less loneliness and less depression. She cites all kinds of studies showing you this. This is no small concern because other research in the same vein indicates that the more screen time kids have, their greater risk of suicide. Conversely, positive outcomes ensue from a child's participation in sports and exercise, religious service, print media, homework, in-person social interaction, and work. Do these things, in other words, and you have a far greater chance of running smack dab into happiness. Oh, my, my kid needs an iPhone. Because you want them lonely and depressed and maybe suicidal? If that's the cost, are you willing to pay that price of maybe a kid thinking you're a fascist? If not having one means human flourishing and the abundant life. And here is the sad, sad thing. Most parents say, I'm not willing to pay that price. So, I was warned tonight by my uh, tech guy. Do I need to tell you when to get off of something, get on to something else? TV and technology are largely detrimental. I think we at least need to figure out ways to, number one, either get rid of it, or help our children know how to budget it. For instance, TV. I know of families that say two hours a week after the age of eight. None up to age eight. 
it changes your brain so dramatically and the way your brain actually operates, you don't want it, you don't want a kid anywhere close to it. Particularly cartoons for crying out loud. That's just that's manic kind of stuff. Keep them away from all that till age eight. Then if you just feel like my kid's missing out on the world and you want them to have some, let them have some, two hours a week. Maybe four hours a week. I don't know. Go crazy. I, I watched four hours and a half day on an average. Growing up, I just did. I'm, I'm just horrified by it, but I did. And, and so you say, okay, four hours. Now, let's say the Super Bowl is coming up. Oh, the Super Bowl. Do we have to even talk about that? Anyway, let's just say the Super Bowl is coming. Your kid wants to watch everything but the commercials and the cheerleaders, cheerleaders on the sideline and the, and the halftime show. Is there any way you could watch it? Will you just watch the plays? That would be a kind of a cool program, and they got them. All right, anyway, just to say they want to watch the Super Bowl. Okay, you're going to have to save up. This is a budget. You save up time so that you can cash that in, watch it for four hours, and then go on your merry way, get your next four hours next week, and, and you can save up for things if you need them. Point being, We've got to figure out a way to get a hold of this with our kids because just letting them do what they want to do is always a bad strategy until they're 16, 17, 18, 19, and then they're on. They're off. And they are going to make great decisions after that if they haven't been trained by the world, trained by Hollywood, trained by Madison Avenue. They're going to make great decisions. I know because kind of parents we have in this room are pretty, uh, pretty impressive. So having said that, there's bad, bad, bad rituals, and those aren't the only ones. you got to say, how can we get rid or really reduce the bad rituals that we do, and then how can we promote good ones? And so I'm going to go through this really quick. All right, Mike, here we go. Five minutes or just pull the plug. Just turn the, every light off, and we'll know it's over, okay? So here we go. Dinner together is an extraordinarily great ritual. Now, this, I'm going, to, I'm going to show you this by the research. Go to on TV. Uh, oh, my goodness. Where, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last page. No, I didn't. In, I, I didn't put in the, the. Anybody see it? Anybody see the dinner stuff? I can't believe it. Okay, so he, here's the point. I was, I, was, I was teaching this material a couple years ago, and uh, someone, someone came, extraordinary parents, and they came into my household. Actually, they live in Clinton, uh, the Cockrell family. Cockrells came in. Rosa says, I read research the other day that surprised me. But I'm so glad for it because we followed through whether we knew we were supposed to or not. She goes, uh, that National Merit Scholars. Now, we've had National Merit finalists. Were you all scholars, finalists? There's a scholar thing that's like the... <laughs> One-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. So I, I, I never had any scholars. We had finalists, I think, in this church. Uh, we had a number of them. And so it's kind of cool when you're finalists because that means you're top one-tenth of one percent or something crazy like that. But uh, she says, scholars. She says, without, without exception, national merit scholars eat with their families together three to five times a week. I looked it up. I mean, I went to the internet and started doing all kinds of searches trying to figure that. Sure enough, it's one of the most well-documented things we know. If you want your kid to grow up smart, if you want your kid to grow up spiritual, if you want your kid to grow up and have less opportunity for drugs, uh, less likely to drink, less likely to smoke, 
one of the key things you can do is eat together with them five times a week or more. And if you eat five times a week together or more, it does enormous things. Now, I didn't say do spiritual things while you're eating. It just said eat together. Just be together around the table. has incredible power to, to create a great kid. Now, three times or less, and that's when you start talking about kids that sometimes are a mess and no meals at all. Now, there are exceptions to every rule. You know what I do, too. You can eat together all the time and have messed up kids. You can never eat together and have a great kid. But that's the weight of the direction of the dynamic. And National Merit Scholars, without fail, always ate together. Always ate together. So I looked that up. Then I found out. I'm going to need another five minutes besides that file I just gave to you. Then I looked it up, and there's a great book called Our Father Abraham, written by Marvin Wilson. Get the book. Our Father Abraham, Marvin Wilson. Uh, it talks about Jewish stuff and how Jewish stuff we, we, we just cast aside as Christians. We should pick up on a good bit of it. And one of those things was this. When the temple was destroyed, the rabbis and the priests were running away from the temple, were running away from Jerusalem, and as they're running away, trying to save their own lives, they thought, now where are we going to worship? The temple's gone. Where are we going to worship? And they said, hey, wait a minute. From now on, since we have no temple, the home will be the miniature temple. And the altar of the temple will be the dinner table. That's where we'll light the candles. That's where we'll do the blessings over the kids. That's where we'll teach our children scripture. That's where we'll sing the songs of our Jewish faith. I read that and I thought, oh my goodness. Could we do that? So I just went to our house and said, said sweetheart, buckle in. Here we go. And uh, on, the page, on page one, it shows you what we started to do. Uh, and we carried through it, again, for, for, for several decades, or for three decades, we kind of did this stuff. I would start off re- reading. I wanted them to see that men read to their children. Now, we always did it some. Mary did it mostly, and I didn't grow up reading at all or being read to, so that was kind of like a whole different thing for me. But now I see there's enormous power in it. Oh, my goodness, there's power in it. So I read. C.S. Lewis or George MacDonald, one of the kids' books, or Mission Biography. Then we sing a hymn. I brought everybody hymn books. So I say, open up the number one. And that's for the Methodist hymn book. That's what? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. All right. So we'll sing great hymns of the faith. And they know them. We don't sing them here. Maybe we should. But I want them to know it. And I don't think it's the church's responsibility to get your kid to know anything. Now, that sounds radical. My pastor just said that. I don't think it's the church's responsibility to get your kid to know anything. I think it's your responsibility. The church ought to help you. You ought to choose a church that helps you. I think this church does. But having said that, it's your responsibility, not the pastor's. Your responsibility, not the children's director. And so, who's going to teach them hymns? Me. So, we would sing a hymn together. Then we got the catechism. You all know about the catechism. We do a section of the catechism. Uh, Then we do an Old Testament passage, and we memorize these together. We as a family probably got 500, passage, or 500 uh, verses, mem- and that's not that many. A lot of families have thousands. We got about 500 we do together, like something like Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, Psalm 100, Psalm 139. Uh, we know uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We know the Ten Commandments. So I'll start them off, and they just go. I can teach you how to do that someday soon, maybe next week when I have another five minutes. Then we do a New Testament passage. Then we do one of the great creeds or some longer saying from like William Booth or John Wesley. 
Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed. Then we do a famous prayer. Might be out of the Bible, might be the Lord's Prayer, for instance, or it could be uh, St. Francis' Prayer, or we have about eight, nine of these that we do together. Then I'll squeeze this side of the table. Remember now we have uh, eight of us, and we don't want to do everybody every night. So I squeeze this side, or I squeeze this side. That means this side prays, this side prays. They know to do about a 20-second prayer of adoration, thanksgiving, and then praying for this meal to nourish our bodies for the Great Commission, or something like that. And then... Uh, <laughs> If I didn't need you so much, I'd fire you, all right? If, if you weren't free, I mean, really. How about Mike Romain? Isn't he a stud? He occasionally can be really irritating, but he's a great guy. So um, then I didn't. I end up with a prayer. End up with a prayer that says something like this. You, you've heard it down here occasionally. Jesus, send us to the hard and dark places of the world that need you the most. Lord, if uh, there's a place in the world... We need someone to show up and bleed and die. You can count on Hannah. You're going to be able to count on Isaiah. They're going to be willing to say, yes, sir, no matter what you ask them to do. Jesus, when they go over those hard and dark places, because they're obeying you, and out of love, they're serving these people, love for you and love for these people. If they, in fact and indeed, bleed and die and suffer enormously, when we hear about it back here in Jackson, we will not ask the question, Jesus, why? We will sing, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. You can count on my kids, Jesus. They're going to say yes or you no matter what. Jesus, we love you with all of our, and they'll all, as one voice says, hearts. We love you with all of our souls. We love you with all of our mights. In Jesus' name we pray, let's eat. You say, whoa, how long does that take you? That's about 10, 12, depending on how long I read, 15 minutes. The number one question I have, it always comes from a woman. Can someone predict what this is? Yeah. How do you keep the, f so I ask, I don't know. You know, I'm just a dumb guy down at the end of the table trying to lead his family and, and, and Jesus stuff. Never dawned on me. The food's getting cold. So I said, sweetheart. How do you keep the food warm? She goes, put a lid on it. Oh, so there you go. That's all I got for you. Y'all, there are positive rituals, bad rituals. Get the good ones going. We'll talk about the rest of it next week. won't take long, but uh, we got like four uh, habits of holy parents. And the first one is get a hold of your rituals and make sure they allow for human flourishing in Jesus. And if you do that, you've done a great favor to your family that have grown up, grow up and be extraordinary for the kingdom. They're going to be a blessing to the world. Jesus, help us. Help us. Help us by your grace. We're not going to say that anybody in here is saying, man, I know how to do this. I think or we're all kind of thinking, well, any little itty bitty instruction and piece of advice, I'm, I'm willing to consider because it's tough to raise a kid in this world. It's tough. Jesus, help us. By your grace, we want to be a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Love you. Thank you.